Sup, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? Happy to see you. First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out, and then we will get on with the show. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver provider, the only place that I order my gold and silver bullion from. I love these guys. They have been in business for nearly a decade now. They have done over $3 billion in sales. They turn around my orders very quickly. They have a wonderful website, jmbullion.com. They have great inventory, great stock, great prices, and QTR podcast listeners have their own rep there. The lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. So if you don't feel like ordering from the website, you want a little bit of personalized service, you have a little questions about gold and silver bullion, email Laura, tell her you're a QTR podcast listener, and she will make sure that you get taken care of. My dear friends over at JM Bullion, longtime supporters of the podcast, thank you guys so much. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Sang, Lucci, and Wall Street Jesus have paired together and have been working on for the last decade all kinds. They have all kinds of great shit. Lucci does great master classes. They have all kinds of wonderful products. Check out sanglucci.com. Check out Wall Street Jesus. But the Steam Room is my favorite. It is a wonderful piece of software that you can check out that helps track big money coming into the options market, which many times can telegraph what's going to happen in the equities market. Uh, And so these guys are experts at market psychology, at tape reading, and the Steam Room uh, was really the OG piece of software when it comes to tracking unusual options activity. These guys have been doing it longer than anybody else. So if you're going to, you know, get some software to watch the options market and you want a community of traders to discuss with, check out Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Nice people, honest people, people I hang out with and that I've known long before they were supporters of the podcast. So happy to give them my recommendation. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. My buddy George Gammon has paired together with Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson, and many other people who have much bigger brains than I do uh, to talk macro and help you manage your finances in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. Rebel Capitalist Pro, well worth the money. Uh, They have wonderful forums, live question and answer sessions, and they are really hell-bent on trying to help you understand just exactly how out of whack the global macroeconomic picture is. And if you're listening to this podcast, you likely know already that things are fucked beyond repair. So it's just a question of what's coming next. George Gammon and his merry band of brothers would love to help you figure that out and would love to bat it around with you. So check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. I love George Gammon. Great friend of the podcast. Honest person to do business with and genuinely interested in getting truthful answers. That's why I like him. Speaking of which, one of my favorite sub stacks to read is Doomberg. Doomberg, the link to that is in my podcast description. Uh, produces wonderful content about you know energy and commodities and macro from a skeptical libertarian Austrian focused lens uh, with a little bit of humor and a little bit of snark. It's just a wonderful read. It's one of my favorite Substacks to read. Uh, check out my dear friends over at Doomberg. That link is also in my podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by. My friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst, Jay Mintzmeyer, we got to have him on again soon, my buddy Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, 
Max Mulvihill, Mark Haywood, and Kyle Thomas, three people that have been with me forever, going on four years supporting the podcast. I can't thank you guys enough. You've been here since day one. I published the first thing. I had like two listeners. I'll never forget. And now that, you know, between YouTube and the blog and all these other things, millions of listeners and millions of readers don't know who all you sick weirdos are, but I'm happy to have you here. (laughs) And uh, I want to shout out some of the founding members of my fringe finance column link to that is in my podcast description. I write almost daily on my blog, my Substack fringe finance. Thanks to people like T Tony Gagliotti. I think his name is or T Gagliotti, whatever your name is. Thank you for your support. My friend, a farmer and uh, my friend, Chris and Mark Hutchinson. Thank you guys so much for supporting my blog fringe finance. This podcast has a three drink minimum. I am not a financial advisor. I'm not a political advisor and I'm not an expert at anything. I don't think we're going to talk too much finance today, but we may talk a little bit about it. General disclaimer, don't listen to anything that I have to say. But I will offer this disclaimer. Since we're talking to a political candidate, make sure you hold this guy to what he does say and what he doesn't say as well. Because that's the whole point of getting a political candidate on the record. You want to know where they stand and you want to be able to point back to something and say, hey, you said this, you said that. Because the world of politics is a lot of bullshit, a lot of nonsense. So here we go. All right, so for the first time in podcast history, I have a uh, political candidate on the line with me today who was uh, linked up to me via a listener, and uh, this is the first time I've ever spoken to him, and I actually didn't give him any disclaimers or anything. I just called him. I've been on the phone with him for about 30 seconds, so I'm going to give him the disclaimers now on the recording so that everything's on the record, that uh, the podcast is always unedited, and you know we talk about whatever we want. Uh, it's a very free environment, uh, and, uh, and that's really about it. There, there's no editing and, and no nonsense. So what you hear is, uh, you know, the first time I've ever talked to this gentleman. His name is Dave Galuch. He is the Republican candidate for U.S. Congress in uh, PA District 5. Uh, the gentleman is 32 years old, although his photo here, he looks like a young pup. I just asked him what his uh, what his age was, which is, you know— for the most part, irrelevant if he brings it, uh, you know, intellectually. But I was like, man, this kid looks like uh, he looks like a young pup. But at 32 years old, man, he's got a wonderful resume. He uh, obtained an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and began service as a midshipman in July 2008. Uh, he comes from a family with a history of service dating to before the American Revolution. Uh, he graduated. Uh, in 2012, ranked sixth in his class of nearly 1,200. He then went on to obtain a graduate degree from the University of Cambridge. Uh, he has uh, been deployed twice, once to the Middle East uh, and once to Somalia with SEAL Team 4. Um, and he and his sailors were tasked with reducing explosive threats and other weapons on the battlefield. He is an expert in improvised explosive devices. Uh, He met his wife in 2015, uh, Caroline. They were married in 2018, and they have uh, plans to uh, start a family here, according to the bio. So, Dave, welcome to Uncharted Waters, my friend. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm fantastic. Thanks for for having me on, Chris. I'm excited to chat today. This will be a lot of fun. So listen, the the only piece of due diligence that I did on you uh, was I looked at your district and saw that you are you really have a, 
appear to have a tough task in front of you in terms of unseating a, uh, a Democrat. Is this Bucks County where, where this district is? No, it is Delaware County primarily, and then a piece of Montgomery County, and then actually a piece of South and Southwest Philly as well. So three three wards in Philly, uh, a small piece of Montgomery County, uh, and then all of Delaware County. So what, you know, has the district um, been red at any point? Uh, actually, historically, it was a very red district. So Delaware County itself was controlled by the Republican Party almost universally from 1865 to 2019 at the county level. Uh, the seat was held by Congressman Kurt Weldon for about 20 years, who was a Republican, Congressman Meehan from 2010 to 2016. Uh, so actually, historically, it was a Republican district, a very strong Republican district. And um, only 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 recently has it uh, has it kind of flipped in the other direction. And when when was that and why do you think that happened? Uh, that was 2018. Congresswoman Scanlon won her first term. Oh, okay. So uh, it just flipped. That's correct. That's correct. So, and as we saw, right, the past couple of years have seen sort of a realignment in U.S. politics uh, in a way. Um, you know, Southeast Pennsylvania and uh, suburban areas have gotten a little more Democratic. And then obviously uh, rural areas have trended more towards Republicans. So I think no, no state kind of showcases that phenomenon better than uh, Pennsylvania does. Yeah. All right. Well, look, there's a million issues we can talk about. Why don't you just open by telling me, you know, why you're running and, you know, what are the top issues that you hope to affect change on? And then we'll take it from there. Sure. I love that. So, look, I uh, like you kind of said in the bio, uh, I come from a military family or a family with at least a tradition of military service. But um, one one important piece that you didn't highlight on, um, excuse me, that you didn't highlight, which is which is important to my worldview and sort of the way uh, I view service and kind of the lens through which I look at things. My my um, my mom raised me on her own. She was a single mom. My father was killed by a drunk driver before I was born. I was an only child. So it was just my mom and I growing up. And I had a large extended family. My dad was one of seven. My mom's one of four. Uh, so the old adage, it takes a village really is true to me. And I've seen the power of family and community. So, um, for me, you know, family and community, plus the ideal of service going back generations in my family, um, always inspired me to kind of want to fight, fight for other people and, and serve a community and serve a country that despite the sort of adverse circumstances and bad luck that befell my family, uh, still gave me a lot. So, um, I went to the Naval Academy and, uh, it was it was kind of funny. My mom wasn't uh, the happiest about the fact that her only son was going to the Naval Academy. But kind of by the time I was a senior, she had she had accepted the fact that I was going to be in the Navy. But she kind of thought that I would be safe and on board ships. You know, and a, a ship is a safer place to be than the middle of the desert in Iraq or Afghanistan. And uh, I and I broke her heart. Told her that uh, I was I was I was going to take apart bombs for a living as an explosive ordnance disposal officer. Um, so that that broke her heart. Fast forward uh, seven and a half years to 2019. She was overjoyed after I got out of the Navy. I had no intention of ever running for politics. I moved to Delaware County to be close to my wife's family who lives just over the state line into the state of Delaware. Um, I got a job with Comcast doing strategic development. My wife works at a school uh, here in Newtown Square where we live called Episcopal Academy. And, uh, you know, events have just kind of coalesced to such a degree in this country, though, that I felt like I had to get back off the sidelines and step into the arena. I've seen the best our country has to offer. Uh, I've seen what real leadership is. I've seen what uh, 
folks uniting behind the values and institutions and history and the best of our traditions, um, you know, to overcome long odds. Um, I've, I've been a witness to all those things and I don't think we're getting enough of it anymore. And we have some serious challenges to tackle as a country. So I felt like, uh, like I said, I had to get off the sidelines and back into the arena. So, so here I am. Yeah, that's that. Those are nice sentiments. And just from a, a bird's eye perspective, you know, one of the things that I have noticed often between the difference between the right and the left is that the right often comes from this position of, you know, being thankful, uh, embracing tradition and, you know, the sacrifices of days past, uh, you know, a better understanding of history, in, in my opinion, um, and just a modest and, you know, having some humility uh, about uh, about, you know, the, the shoulders of the people that you've had to stand on to get to the point where you are. And, and what I see nowadays a lot from the left is an attitude that, you know, everything that we've done in our history has been toxic and, and, and horrifying. And, you know, we need to be in this constant and perpetual state of, um, you know, guilt and shame and reparations. And, you, you know, admittedly, you know, through the lens of what we know today, there are things in our history uh, that are horrifying. Um, but also, I th- you know, I think there has to be a balance between um, having a, a real understanding of that. And I think it's important to. I think it's important to understand history and, and especially to look at it through the lens of what it was like um, then and now, um, but also to have, uh, you know, some reverence for the you know the people that came before us and got us to the point where we are which is you know sitting in your uh academic office sipping a starbucks and looking at your iphone and you know having the 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 technology necessary to write the book that criticizes everything that brings you to to where you are today you know is that is that one of the main things that kind of like drove you i mean you said just now you know you felt this need to step back in the arena like, what was it? What was the catalyst that pushed you? Yeah, well, so let me kind of go go off, though, because you, you did really bring up a really interesting point that, that I'm actually quite interested in. I actually read a lot of political philosophy, and then I, I, I enjoyed talking about the things you, you just kind of mentioned. And I really do think that that is a pretty good characterization of way of, of the way that the small, like, say, uh, small C conservatives and small P progressives kind of view change and what's possible. Um, You know, I think the left really does think it's possible to, uh, you know, ignore things like history, ignore things like ingrained traditions, ignore things like all of the inherited things that, that, that we sort of soak up like sponges as people living in communities and that are transmitted to us through our communities, through our institutions, all of these things that are really actually hard to quantify and, and identify and they kind of believe we can remake society remake institutions from first principles and certainly there's a strong impulse uh of that sort of strain in american history i mean in some sense right we did remake ourselves but in many ways our revolution in our country and the founding was a conservative revolution right the the founding fathers and the folks who who authored our founding documents and came up with our founding institutions they didn't totally throw off everything from the past they they leveraged the best of the traditions that they got from England and, and you know, from, from the various places they came and the institutions they came from to, to amend the shortcomings that they saw in the system. And I think to me, that's, that's the essence of 
small C conservatism that I'd like to bring to bear, right? Using the best of our history, the best of our past to amend our shortcomings, understanding that human beings aren't perfect. We're not blank slates. We can't be reprogrammed uh, mid midlife. And I think understanding that there are constraints on change, on the pace of change, on the on the scope of change we can make possible um, is, is extremely important when you're talking about leading, you're talking about trying to move people, um, you know, to, to be comfortable with certain types of change. So for me, taking a more limited view is, is ultimately the more effectual view because we're able to make change occur organically and make it stick over time, as opposed to trying to impose change from the top down, which ultimately is oftentimes resisted and ends up failing. So um, I just think that those are really important philosophical points to bring up, and they're not talked about explicitly enough in the context of politics and policymaking and leadership. Um, and then as far as the, the thing that kind of gave me a shove, um, it was it was really a multiplicity of factors. But I'd say the summer of 2020 and, and sort of the developments just in the lead up to the election in 2020 really upset me. Um, you know, things things like the rioting and looting and and the sort of just heightened tensions of the country and seeing people turn against each other, brother against brother neighbor against neighbor, folks uh, disavowing the time-honored traditions of leadership and and kind of disavowing the institutions and the principles which really should unite all of us, who, uh, whether we stand on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, the Democratic side, the Republican side. And and again, these are the sort of institutions and things and the norms and, and principles that I fought for, that my friends fought for, many of whom bear the scars of their service, some who didn't come home. So uh, for me, uh, I guess that, that would probably factor um you know it was hard to watch symbols of our country especially in the in, in the place where our, our our country was founded living outside of philadelphia right um you know flags on police cars <laughs> seeing them burn um you know i can promise you when you stand next to a, a, a unit mates flag covered casket at arlington cemetery like i have the flag takes on a different meaning the country takes on a different meaning and and my expectations of those who occupy the highest offices in our country um, are, are extremely high. And quite frankly, I think a lot of members of Congress and a lot of folks uh, in Washington are simply not meeting the mark anymore. Yeah, I think that's safe to say on both sides of the aisle, too. <clears throat> you know, not, not just on the left, not just on the right. I think it's safe to say on both sides of the aisle. I think there's, you know, what was stunning to me about the the riots and the looting and all the things that you're talking about some of which you know much of which is persisting still in in many you know cities cities like san francisco and chicago and even here in philadelphia um you know it was just a, a sense of flailing a sense of you know fighting for one thing and 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 actions that are just counterintuitive for example calling to defund the police, <clears throat> you know, and then when shit starts getting hairy, uh, for example, in Seattle, I remember there was a big, you know, they had that big autonomous zone and there were calls to defund the police and the mayor was all good with it until everybody showed up on the mayor's lawn. And then the mayor was like, well, hey, we got to stop this. You know, it's like, all right, well, now that it affects you, you know, and, and other instances around the country of calls to defund the police where crime has run rampant and now people are backtracking on their statements and saying, wow, you know, the police actually provide a service that we need. And often, too, you know, we you see Black Lives Matter riots burning down Black-owned businesses. And you're like, okay, like, how is this helping? You know, and, and putting aside the tone on the right and on the left about about the protests, you know, because 
in my opinion, the left characterized these as peaceful protests when they were not. But putting that aside, it just seems like a country that almost doesn't even know what it's angry about. And, you know, I have theories about that, about the uh, the the inequality gap in the country and the effects of, you know, our, our federal reserve system and monetary policy that I think contribute to it. But uh, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I was horrified to see those things. It felt like the country was devolving into a third world country, but it was even... It was even more disturbing to kind of come to the realization that I'm not I'm not quite sure these people know what they're fighting for. Well, look, I think um, obviously we we have a lot of shortcomings we still need to overcome as a country. You talk about, you know, uh, I, I, I don't like the So I think there's an opportunity gap in this country. And, and, and I think that's the better way to characterize it, not the inequality gap, because I think a lot of people really don't have a problem with. The fact that, you know, some people do better than others, as long as everyone feels as though they're getting a fair shot. And I think in far too many communities across this country, to include many in my district, right, Philadelphia, Chester, Pennsylvania, um, a lot of communities in eastern Delaware County, for, for example, they've been left behind. They've been forgotten. They suffer from from underinvestment. Right. Um people feel like they don't have a fair shot because they don't have the opportunities. And that's certainly something we need to talk about. But destroying communities uh, inhibits our long-term ability to give people opportunity to make them safe places to live. And we've seen the fallout from that, right? I mean, we've seen spikes in violent crime. Right. We've seen spikes in murder. We've, um, all of these things are now making vulnerable, vulnerable populations who are already suffering from a lack of opportunity. In fact, they're, they're now worse off than before. So um, I think that, that, that a lot of these things were capitalized on by, by people who said that they had the best interests of, of these vulnerable folks and these folks who suffer from a lack of opportunity, um, you know, who said that, that, they, that they had their best interests at heart, but they actually never had their best interests at heart. And if it comes down to it, you know, they failed to deliver time and again. And I'll, I'll, I'll just go back to the, the defund the police point um, specifically. You know, my, my opponent, Mary Gay Scanlon, proudly marched with defund the police protesters. Um, she was she was entirely behind the rhetoric of that movement. Um, and then I, I don't know if a lot of your guests know, but she was actually carjacked at gunpoint in Philadelphia in December of 2021 in FDR Park. I think it's absolutely terrible. No one should have to have to suffer from violence like that, from uh, from violent crime like that. And I'm glad she's OK. But of course, she called the police immediately. And furthermore, she got her car back in about an hour uh, and her phone and her government laptop. You know, they were in they were in the car. She she got it back immediately. Um, but the sad part is a car gets carjacked every four hours in Philadelphia. And the, and the majority of people who are not sitting members of Congress don't ever get their car back. They never get their property back. That's they suffer right. from right, right. They suffer. They suffer from this violence, which is a result of, you know, uh, the lax enforcement of laws on the books and the promotion of rhetoric, which promotes an environment of lawbreaking. And right. and again, the people who suffer most are, are our vulnerable populations, our socioeconomically disadvantaged populations and folks who can afford to live behind gates um, in wealthy communities never feel the consequences of their political rhetoric. That's right. And when I'm in Center City, like I was a, a few months ago, and, you know, organizations from North Philadelphia come down to march on City Hall about gun violence, okay, which is uh, 
a, a, a protest that I followed along with for about an hour or so a few months ago when they came down to City Hall. I just happened to be out there, and so I was just interested in what was going on. You know, I was speaking to one of the organizers. Majority of the people were from North Philadelphia, uh, predominantly uh, minorities, predom- predominantly people of color. Uh, and what were they calling for? They were calling for two things. They were calling for the mayor to uh, enforce stricter gun laws, which we can talk about. And they were calling for an increased police presence in North Philadelphia, right? So you have, you know, look, you have the defund the police rhetoric. You have the all cops are bastards rhetoric. You have, you know, the, the, you know, the traditional, the fuck the police rhetoric that comes out of these neighborhoods. But the, the real people in these neighborhoods, a lot of the people involved in these communities, you know, they don't want less policing. They want more policing. When I run through West Philadelphia, and I often, I'll run all the way out past Penn's campus. I'll run uh, on Chester Avenue all the way down to like sometimes 63rd, 65th in Chester, um, you know, which are communities that are, you know, they could use some help. But I see members of the community out there on the corner picking up the trash from the ground, you know, sweeping up their uh, their front steps, trying to make an effort to, you know, to thread their community together in some way. I see them, you know, attending church on Sunday mornings when I run out there. So, I, you know, I, I see what the communities are like, and it just they just don't get any kind of help. They, you know, they, they don't – I remember, you know – I'm not a major Al Sharpton fan, but I remember a speech that Al Sharpton gave uh, in one documentary that I watched. Uh, I think it was the Louis Theroux documentary where they were driving, you know, from Harlem uh, down to Manhattan. And he says to Louis Theroux, look at the difference in the way that the streets are cared for here versus how they're cared for when we get to Manhattan. And you see the same thing, right? The, the streets are cared for very well in Center City. They're cared for, you know, very well where I live. There's people whose sole job is to go around and make sure that the streets stay tidy and that trash isn't strewn all over the place. But, you know, when I go run outside of the city, when I go run through West Philly, or when I go run up past Temple, you know, because I go on long runs through the city, all, what I see is I see people trying to do their best to make that effort, to make up for the gap, you know, of the advantages that, you know, somebody like me has in my neighborhood and they have. And also these are the same people that are being hit the hardest by, you know, things like inflation, right? Their cost of living is skyrocketing. So they don't have the financial resources that, you know, you're talking about people in their gated communities have, whatever. So, you know, I I really think that these, if given the choice the people of integrity within their communities that have an interest in in unity in their communities and unity in the city and safety for the people that live here, those people want more police, not less. Uh, completely agree. A lot to unpack there, but I'll tell you right now, um, I think you're spot on when it comes to the vast, vast, vast majority of people in these communities are not ideologues, they're common sense. Right. Uh, they don't want handouts, they want hand-ups. Hand-ups are safe streets and the most essential public good of all, uh, upon which all other public goods are built, which is public safety, right. Um, they want jobs, they want the ability to start businesses and maintain businesses in their communities. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot of troubled communities around Pennsylvania Five. I volunteer in Chester, Pennsylvania, a group called Chester City Sweeps. Yep. 
Um, I know Chester very we, well. Yeah. So we pick up garbage in Chester and uh, we do that once every two weeks in the summer. I love doing it. I've met some amazing people, some amazing, amazing people doing great things for that city. You have a huge, huge um, portion of, of the population there who wants a better tomorrow that are working hard. And, um, you know, I certainly am prioritizing, you know, economic development in Chester and things like that, because if, if we can solve the problems in Chester, a lot of which suffer from things like deindustrialization, the loss of good jobs, the breakdown in public safety, we can solve the problems in so many other communities across this country. Uh, you look at Upper Darby. I do some volunteering at Upper Darby as well at the 69th Street Transportation Terminal. Yep, I know that uh, very well. I've, yep, I volunteer with a group uh, that does outreach to folks suffering from substance abuse. And it, and it seems every time, you know, we're handing out food in the, in the winter, we, you know, hand out clothes and blankets and jackets and things like that. And we have trained professionals who are able to identify folks who are, you know, having issues with substance abuse and to try and get them into rehab and other substance abuse programs. It seems like every time we have someone overdosing on opioids, usually illegally produced fentanyl, all that's coming across our border. Again, that's just another issue that's being ignored in Washington. That's not being, um, that's not being prioritized by my opponent, Mary Gay Scanlon and Joe Biden and folks in a position of leadership right now. And we have more and more fentanyl coming across our border. It's finding its ways into communities, um, you know, like upper Darby. So again, when folks in Washington or folks in Harrisburg fail to deliver, you know, it's it's our most vulnerable who suffer most. And uh, that should be intuitive, but oftentimes people forget that. But, you know, if you're if you're getting around Pennsylvania five, you're going to every community, you see the reality of these decisions and this failed leadership. And it it motivates me more and more and more because I know we deserve better. We're capable of better. And again, I've, I've led folks when it mattered most, when the stakes are highest and we, we achieve great things. And I think we need to remind ourselves we can still achieve great things as a country again. Yeah. Chester's a great analog to what I was just talking about too, because Chester is exactly the type of community where, you know, the people have to go out and they have to sweep up their streets. I mean, look, you got the soccer stadium, you got the airport, you got Harris Chester and you have, uh, What's the? They got one other thing. Oh, they got the prison, right? And and that's pretty much like, you know, those are the four like big major complexes in Chester, and and the rest of the community it needs help. I mean, I've been to Chester innumerable amounts of time. Uh, it, it's the type of place where if if you don't get out there and do it yourself, uh, you're not getting any help from the city. You're not getting any help from you know uh, public service. Um, so, I guess a good question would be. Um, Say you want to uh, try to make things more equitable in that sense um, and improve access to public safety and improve access to, you know, whatever. Things like we're talking about sanitation, cleaning up the streets. Uh, financially, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you make that happen in, in PA5 um, financially? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple things um, which will help. Um, and I'm sure we're going to touch on some other kind of policy areas that will dive down the rabbit holes of that, that are important to me and kind of tie into this. But um, ultimately, I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge believer that, you know, you have to put opportunity first. What does opportunity mean, right? So that means wage and productivity enhancing employment. So productivity that allows people to, you know, improve their skill level over time. And obviously productivity gains equal wage gains, uh, you know, at least they should over time. So 
those are the kind of jobs that you know we used to have in Chester. We had a, a shipyard in Chester that employed 30,000 people. We had steel and a Ford plant in Chester. We, we used to have that all over this area. Um, I come from a family of steel workers, union steel workers. So I not I I know that firsthand. I know you know we can't recreate the economy of the 1950s again, but these sorts of jobs where we're you know um, promoting advanced manufacturing, promoting things like uh, uh, semiconductor construction, shipbuilding. Again, as a Navy guy, I'm very, very passionate about. And in Pennsylvania, we have the energy sector, right? The energy sector, I think uh, the job multiplier is like 18.3, right? So for every job you create in the energy sector, you create 18.3 jobs in other sectors downstream. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do in investing in our things like our energy infrastructure, for example, putting, uh, you know, considering putting in, uh, a liquefied natural gas plant somewhere along the Delaware River, uh, you know, to ship that stuff out, right? Um, I think that's that's one really, really, really good and kind of easy win. How do you how do you incentivize those things? How do you get businesses to say Chester is where I want to be and this is what needs to happen there? You know, those are all nice thoughts, but how do you like how do you create the incentive to do that? Yeah, so I mean, obviously you uh, you have tax incentives, you have tax credits. Uh, you know, um, I know Philadelphia has tried tax abatements in the past when it comes to trying to get people to move in. So a similar principle, um, a similar principle to that. And then I'd also say, look, I mean, I think there is room when it comes to uh, strategically important industries, right? For you know, some some level of government investment in some of these things. Um, you see it again in our shipyards, right? We have public ship shipyards in the United States. There's a lot of uh, debate about building another public shipyard to keep up with Chinese shipbuilding. China builds 14 ships a year. We build one ship a year. We need to increase you know, shipbuilding capacity. So in, in some of these industries, I would even be willing to consider you know, public investment in some of these things as well. How does shipbuilding and you know, putting an LNG plant and you know, steel fabrication, how, how does that clean up the streets of Chester? Well, as opposed, right now, as opposed to something like, I'm sorry for interrupting, as opposed to something yeah. like, you know, Harris or PPL Park down there where the grounds are very nice. But as soon as you walk one block off the grounds of where the casino is or one block off the grounds of where the soccer stadium is, it, it's a completely different world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, again, you so the problem is there's no real tax base in Chester, right? Um, it's It's been losing population for, I think, now, you know, generations um it's much smaller smaller than it used to be uh and, and again that goes back to the importance of what kind of employment what kind of industries are you bringing in are you bringing in service sector jobs that pay people minimum wage or are you bringing bringing in jobs which allow for skill enhancement allow for productivity enhancement allow for wage enhancement which will over time provide a stable and growing tax base in a community like that and ultimately a stable and growing tax base equals uh, you know, being being able to invest in the public goods you need in a community like more police. I actually spoke to um, someone from the Chester Police yesterday at a, at a Chester Business Association event, and they're short staffed right now. They can't even hope to find enough people to fill all the slots they need. Right. And they've actually they've actually needed to bring in state troopers to start doing patrols in Chester because they don't have enough manpower. Right. So, um, you know, that's just one example, but obviously. You know, we could talk about a whole bunch of sectors and a whole bunch of places across PA5 where I'm envisioning something similar. Yeah, but I, I like Chester as an example because it's it's an area where, you know, I'm sure there's the voters are predominantly Democrat. Uh, and I'm sure that 
uh, it's representative of the biggest opportunity, let's call it, for, for change in the district, right? Chester is an area that needs help. It's, need help for, it's needed help for a long time. Um, so, I, you know, I like, I like talking about that. Let's talk about, um, I guess we talked, we touched before quickly about the idea of, um, of the second amendment and about, uh, you know, gun control. And, uh, I'm interested in, in your thoughts. There's a debate raging right now in the country on, uh, gun control, given the, uh, the mass shootings here there, there was another one yesterday. So that's two in, in the last three or four days. Uh, including the uh, the horrible one at the school, and uh, you know the the nation. Look, people in my neighborhood, they have the signs in the windows. You know, we should be reading books, not eulogies. Uh, the nation is. Uh, it feels like every time one of these uh, instances happens, we we move a little bit closer uh, toward pushing the nation, you know, to this fever pitch where you know action has. Uh, is more likely to be taken on, on gun control. And, and on the other hand, you know, you have you have the NRA and you have gun owners that recognize, uh, I think, uh, very um, importantly, that once rights are relinquished, they're never given back. Um, and so you have two sides of this debate raging right now. Where do you stand? So uh, this obviously it's a very, very complicated issue. I'll say this. Number one, obviously, horrific, horrific shootings. Um, no one, no one should have to fear for their child going into a school and coming out safely. Uh, it, it's I mean, it's it is shameful that these things are going on. I think um, I think ultimately for me, I take a look at, at at I try and consider the totality of the factors and. And I think the big problem we have in this country is is a failure to to enforce even the most basic of laws at this time. And and by that I mean, um, hold on, let me let me pull it up because I think this this quote really encapsulates the the I would say the sort of hypocrisy um, on on this issue. So several months ago, someone from DA Larry Krasner's office um, gave this quote. Uh, we do not believe that arresting people and convicting them for illegal gun possession is a viable strategy to reduce shootings. Right. Okay. So we talk about the need for more laws. We talk about the need for legislation, but we're not enforcing the most basic of gun laws, which is if you're a convicted felon and you're caught with a firearm, you're supposed to be charged and put in jail. And when we talk about shootings, we, you know, we rightly should be talking about these shootings, right? Seeing children get killed in a school. It's horrible. It's shameful. That shouldn't happen in America. But what about all the other children who are killed in Philadelphia on a daily basis by illegal guns and the DA refuses to prosecute people who are caught with them three, four, five, six times prior? And then on the seventh time, they perpetrate a drive by shooting. People get killed. And then we find out that we could have put this person in jail three years ago the first time he was caught in the commission of a robbery with with an illegal firearm because he was a convicted felon prior. So. For me, the fix is let's enforce the laws we have on the books first and see where that gets us. I also think, you know, the mental health aspect of this is totally undeniable. New York, for example, already has a red flag law at the state level. The police went to the Buffalo shooter's house before he perpetrated the shooting and they didn't do anything. So, again, we're, we are arguing about the need for new laws, but even the states who have the laws that, that they want passed aren't even enforcing them. 
So my question is, why are we looking to pass new laws if we can't even enforce the common sense laws we have already that everyone already agrees to that we've had since the 1960s, right? The number one uh, piece of which is if you're a convicted felon and you're caught with a gun, you, you are put in jail and, and charged. Um, but for me, look, um, I'm, a, I'm a member of the military. Or I was a former member of the military. I believe the Second Amendment is is a fundamental right, a constitutional right. Um, I believe uh, the uh, rooted in the right to bear arms is an is an inherent right to self defense. We've seen how important that has become again in places like Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, the 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 demographic with the fastest growing gun ownership is actually black women, and for good reason because again they're bearing the brunt of this major increase in violent crime, which is largely the product of illegal guns, which are proliferating because these DAs in these big cities refuse, again, to hold people accountable. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, the Second Amendment was not for duck hunting. It's, it's, it's as a check against government overreach and government power. And, um, you know, I, I understand it might seem odd for people to kind of put that in context in 2022, but um, that is important to remember. I mean, constitutional rights are important, and obviously, you know, it, we've 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 always had to strike a balance between preserving rights and, and preserving things like safety. And I don't think we can even adequately assess whether we're doing that until we enforce the laws that we already have, which we're clearly not doing. Well, I, I think those are good points. Um, I think that, you know, I think that if you look at a place like Australia or Shanghai and how the governments uh, there locked those places down during covid uh, I had a discussion with George Gammon on a past podcast that I did that basically where I said, you know, the fact that gun ownership is ubiquitous in the country, don't think that that doesn't come into the minds of politicians when they go to think about exactly how much power they can usurp in a situation, you know, like that. Like Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste. So whether it's COVID or whether it's 9-11 or whether it's the 2008 financial crisis, the government, you know, sees those as opportunities to, you know, move the ball, you know, uh, one yard further closer toward uh, having a grasp on on civil liberties and, 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 you know, people's individual rights. And, you know, I said to George, you can't, you can't, discount the fact that the government has to come because people always say oh well you know the government has nuclear weapons so if they want to you know if they want to take control over the country they can you know it doesn't matter if you own a pistol and like you know to some degree that's true the idea of you know having a well-regulated militia to protect against tyranny um of the government is uh you know in some ways, it's it's idealistic a little bit. It's you know I don't know how, in practice how it would play out, but you can't deny the fact that the government knows that the country has a lot of gun owners, and that it's in some way or another that gets discounted into uh, situations where government considers how much power it wants to yield or try to usurp uh, in situations like that. I mean, but what, what now I want to play devil's advocate though, you know, I, I mean, what do you say to, uh, the people that are so overcome with emotion due to these instances that have taken place that, you know, for them, it's a very cut and dry issue. You know, if you take the guns off the streets or you have, you know, the government 
forces people to relinquish their weapons or, uh, you know, bans whatever, fully automatic weapons or bans, you know, semi-automatic rifles or, there's you know, whatever it is that they think is going to do it, um, that that would, if not solve, throw a serious blanket over uh, over the problem as it exists and continues to recur in the country? Well, I would say you know, the, the prospect of confiscating or, or even buying back, you know, 400 million plus firearms is simply not, I think, a realistic policy choice in my mind, uh, nor would that be effective. Again, uh, I don't think it's realistic. I would also say, I mean, there are things that responsible gun owners would be totally behind. I think, you know, providing incentives for people to store their guns safely, uh, holding, for example, a parent, if you know your child uh, you know, is having mental problems, if they've been committed to an institution in the past or they've been receiving treatment for a mental health issue, and then you say, hey, take this AR-15 and, you know, I'm going to leave you unsupervised with it. I think most reasonable and common sense gun owners would be okay with holding that person accountable. Sure, um, and, and we've seen, right, and we've seen that happen in the past with some of these mass shootings where these kids got guns from their parents. Their parents knew that they had mental issues. Right. I think you hold those people accountable, right? I agree um, with that. I agree with that. <laughs> right. And then the other piece of this is it, it, they, it, they, for, for some reason now saying we have a mental health problem, that's seen as being a cop-out answer, but I, I don't think it's a cop-out answer at all. In fact, I think that's the root cause of these problems, right? We have a huge proliferation of mental health problems especially in our youth and teen population following two plus years of COVID lockdowns in schools where kids were kept out of schools and right. they've had major, major, major issues. We have huge backups now at mental health clinics in Delaware County. Actually, we almost lost our mental health, our primary mental health clinic for it, for a huge portion of the population because there's a big fight going on here with the Crozier health system. So we talk about access to mental health. It's absolutely key. So I do think we, we have to be doing more for teens when it comes to mental health because the, it, it, here's the thing. I mean, back, I think back when my mom was growing up, she's, you know, she's in her late fifties. Now you could, you could order a gun from the Sears catalog. The, the, the would come put it on your doorstep and the gun would sit in a box on the, on, on the step for hours and no one would pick it up and start shooting up the neighborhood. Um, so I do think we, there's, there's a lot of complex factors at play here that, that, you know, do, do have to be addressed. And a lot of it does stem from mental health and, I don't think that should be a partisan thing where we're fighting about it. We should be trying to help people who are seriously suffering from these mental health problems. And oftentimes we see the warning signs over and over and over again, and they're not acted upon. And then this person ends up, ends up committing an act. So, um, you know, I think the mental health piece is huge. And then, um, and then I would just say, you know, we have to be able to have difficult conversations with each other and disagree on certain points, but it, continue to move the ball and make things better while preserving things like fundamental rights. I think we, we can do it and we just need common sense leaders that aren't going to just throw hand grenades all day long, which again, we, we have way too many of. Well, what, what does that mean to you in practice? I mean, does that mean that you support, uh, you know, do you support an American's right to own, you know, militarized automatic weapons with no background check? Where do you no, stand on those things? No, 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 no. I mean, look, those things are already illegal, right? right. Um, when you buy when you buy a firearm, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, you get a background check. Right. Um, already, illegal weapons are are outlawed. Um, and again, I think most people do not disagree with that. But 
people don't understand. You know, they say, well, ban semi-automatic weapons. Well, most weapons are semi-automatic. Right, All right. that means is well, you pull the trigger and a bullet comes out. Right. People don't know what a semi-automatic weapon is, which is the problem. Right. But yes, you know, when I've, uh, you know, I have several handguns and I, I get a background check every time I buy one and I buy them from the same place. And so right. it, it almost seems like overkill at that point, but I'm happy to oblige because, you know, that's, uh, that's the procedure. So you're pro, uh, you know, are you for increasing the scope of background checks? Like, you know, broadening the way that we do background checks? I, I have not seen any proposal that has actually outlined what that would mean. I've, I've, I've heard people toss around these terms and say, well, we need to broaden background checks. Well, I, I, I don't even know what that means. Right now, they're very comprehensive, right? They pull from all the criminal databases. The only thing that they can't do right now is, um, and, and again, this, this goes back to the mental health piece, one of the nine disqualifiers for owning a, a weapon, according to federal law that has been on the books for 50 years, is if you have been committed to a mental institution. Now, the laws right. are written back in, the, I, I think, the 1960s. So the terminology is, I believe, uh, if you're a mental defective or committed to a mental institution. The problem is, is that there's no, quote, mental health database that the background check can pull from. Right. And the reason that it doesn't is that would not be HIPAA compliant because that's medical information. Yeah, it's a, it's so a box. Less. It's a box you check off. They ask you right. on, on the form. Right. 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 So, so, um, so <laughs> that's, that's, that's a challenge. I'm not sure how we overcome that. I think you, you, we would need to talk to technologists and find ways for, you know, look, how do we keep these things HIPAA compliant? So, we're not, you know, violating people's privacy, but, but as of right now, right. Um, you know, you, you just take someone's word for it that they haven't been mentally committed. So, you know, I think this is probably the one issue that, you know, they're probably going to try and talk about in Congress, but I, I just haven't seen any actual detailed explanation of what quote unquote expanded background checks mean. Normally, again, um, you know, on the far left side of the aisle, they default to the, the quote gun show loophole. Right. Um, what people don't understand is, again, at the vast majority of gun shows, when you purchase a weapon, you actually undergo a background check there as well. Um, what that refers to is private transfers. Now, private transfers could mean, uh, say, say I live in Philadelphia and my wife is going to be in the house by herself and say I don't own a weapon. But my neighbor has two. So I ask my neighbor, hey, look, can you let my wife borrow the gun for the weekend just to keep in the house in case someone breaks in? Right. Um you know, I'm afraid for her safety. We live in a neighborhood where there's been carjackings, murder, shootings, things like that. So you just want, you know, your family member to have a gun. Well, if you outlaw private transfers and you make that a felony, you just made both of those people a felon because your wife borrowed a gun to keep herself safe in a neighborhood that has had a historical problem with crime. So I, 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 I don't think people understand the problem uh, until it's explained to them like that. And, and it's not just as easy as snapping your fingers and writing a bill in Washington. Yeah, let's talk about um, stemming from the mental health issue, which I think is a profound and, you know, I think it's a serious issue in the country. And I think that there are things going on that progressives are pushing that are actually exacerbating the mental health crisis that we're having in the country. But let for now, let's just talk about um, mental health as it related to the lockdowns um, and mental health as it relates to COVID. And I want to know where you stand on 
our country's response to COVID, what you see going forward uh, as uh, as our continued response to COVID should be, um, and where you stand on things like vaccination and lockdowns. Uh, so that's that's very. Uh, <laughs> do you do you have a a a particular place you want to start? Because I could. Yeah, just, let's start with this. Do you think okay. that do you think the country did the right thing or the wrong thing in locking down uh, as early as we did? Um, before we knew, you know, a lot about um, COVID while we were waiting to kind of root through the uh, the data that was coming out of places like South Korea and Italy before we even got it in the U.S. So I think in hindsight, the downs for the length of time they occurred were wrong. I understand that in the heat of the moment, decisions were made with incomplete information, um, but so, so I'm less, I'm, I'm less in my mind, I'm less concerned about re relitigating the initial shutdown. What I'm very concerned about is the length of time places were shut down and the scope of the shutdown. You saw other places like Sweden, for example, which really had, um, uh, I would call it a situational lockdown, right? So the, the economy was never fully closed. You had a very targeted effort protect vulnerable people with pre-existing conditions but they didn't actually shut down the whole economy they didn't plunge small businesses into ruin like we did they did we you know we didn't close uh they they didn't close down schools and actually a, a, a lot of uh of european countries never even even closed schools at all because they recognize how how catastrophic that would be so um i do totally agree that that the shutdowns were done for way too long especially when it comes to schools we saw a huge explosion of, of things like mental health problems in our youth, developmental challenges, uh, even you know delays in speech, delays in learning, delays in emotional health, delays in emotional understanding and learning. It's uh, um, you know I don't think really anyone can look at the way we handled it and say, hey, look, we did this perfectly, and if we if we have to do it again, we do it the same way. Well, let's talk about right now where we are going forward. Should there be vaccine mandates and should there be mask mandates? Uh, no, I think um, I think we're at the stage now where if if you have a pre-existing condition and you know you talk to your medical professional and they suggest that you get a vaccine, or they suggest you wear 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 a mask. You know, you should do it. Um, or excuse me, you should have you know take the advice of a medical professional and then make make the decision that you bet uh, you think is best suited for your health. But ultimately, I think we're at a stage now where you know um, we have to give people the choice. Do you agree with the initial government push for everyone to get vaccinated? I think making the vaccine available and giving people information was the key and it should have been done, but not mandating vaccines. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yep. Going forward, let's talk because I know we have about 15 minutes, so I want to try to cover a few issues relatively rapid fire. Um, let's talk about inflation in the country. Um, what do you think is causing it? And how do you think uh, we best go about stopping it? Um, not just, you know, in PA5, but I'm interested in, in how you view the monetary policy and the finances of the country in general. Okay, so um, I'll try and make this quick, although this is, this is a topic I'm very passionate about and I, 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 I understand you are as well. So um, I'll say this. Um, I think the primary drivers of inflation, which, was, which were predicted by um by a vast vast bipartisan consensus of of economists were um you know humongous spending bills 
to inject trillions of dollars in an economy that was artificially shut down. Uh, that was the impetus of it. And then you've also uh, seen huge inflation occurring because of constrained supply of energy, specifically in this country, the erosion of our domestic, uh, not just production, but the refining capacity in this country as right. well. You know, you see um, you see the energy crunch we're in right now, plus, again, the fact that we've had trillions of, jo- of dollars chasing more or less the same amount of goods as before. Uh, you just have, you know, you, you have basic economics, you're going to see massive spikes in prices and that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. You said a bipartisan, uh, a group of economists predicted the inflation that, that, that we're incurring. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, who, who on the left, what, 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 what progressive economists predicted it? So, well, I, so, I mean, Larry Summers, who worked for the Obama administration warned about the effects of the American Rescue Plan. You also had um, uh, the gentleman's name who was the head of Obama's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, whose name is escaping me right now, but okay. I follow him on Twitter and, and he has some good threads. But but if you saw, he did say, right, hey, look, uh, all of these huge, huge increases in spending will you know do almost nothing to enhance productivity, but will send demand soaring through 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 the roof. And that's exactly what happened. So how do you solve the problem that the country has right now, which is we're 30 plus trillion dollars in debt. We have diminished productive capacity. We have enormous trade deficits. Uh, we have, you know, a Federal Reserve that is, uh, you know, printing a trillion dollars a minute or whatever it is, something ridiculous. They've printed nine or 10 trillion dollars just over the last two years, as you noted, while the economy was shut down. Right. So, I mean, it was they they just tried to paper over the economy with extra printed money, um, which, of course, is a is a ridiculous uh, solution to that problem. Um, How does the country get back to sound money, a balanced budget? And and how do you do that in your district? So so there's no immediate fix as 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 you know to inflation monetary policy is 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 like a uh kind of like a train once it gets up to speed right you can't stop it immediately right that's uh right because you lose control so i think part of it obviously is reigning spending uh in you know um trying to return to to a balanced budget that's part of it uh the other piece is you know getting domestic energy going and uh, especially, you know, refining capacity and domestic production going. We have a we have a refinery in our district. It's in trainer and employs, I think, 500 people directly and nine or 10,000 people indirectly across the district, um, you know, supporting institutions like that, which my opponent actually has not done. They've, they've gone through some troubles uh, in the past couple of years and they've got very little help from Congresswoman Scanlon. So, uh, you know, supporting independent refiners and the institutions which produce the energy, which is again um, probably the largest single factor contributing to to the continued inflation, and then I, look, I think we have to take a take a take a long hard look at um, the ballooning dangers of, of our of our national debt. Uh, competition with China will take up probably the remainder of of this century. We need to be competitive over the long haul, and I think I saw a figure the other day that. Um, uh, I believe that just the interest on the national debt will be at 10, 15 percent of of total tax revenue in the not too distant future, and uh, maybe even higher than that. I can't I can't remember, but you yeah, know that sounds about right. You know, three hundred yeah, billion. 
which would be yes. about, about 10% of $3 trillion in tax receipts, which is, I think is right. So, yeah, I mean, having to, you know, again, build ships, maintain aircraft, um, do all of the other things we, we, we need to do to be competitive as a country against China it gets harder and harder as, as that debt service gets larger and larger. A lot of that debt itself, which is owned by, by the Chinese government. So, um, you know, I do think we, we need to have a debt conscious uh, sort of test when we talk about any policy moving forward, because eventually, uh, you know, it's not a problem until it becomes a problem. Right. Uh, and, and unfortunately both, both parties have, have contributed over the years to this astronomical spending on top of astronomical spending. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift gears. I want to know, uh, where you stand on, uh, gender and the debate uh, going on in the country right now over whether or not gender is a social construct or whether gender is uh, part of a human being's biology. And, uh, you know, the various uh, controversies that have stemmed from the country's progression in a different direction on that, namely, you know, uh, uh, biological males competing with females in swimming and biological females competing with, uh, you know, uh, with males in other sports and, um, and the, the, the country's push to uh, really, you know, enable uh, young people to uh, to choose their own gender and, and do it at, you know, an age that many people think is too young for somebody to make such a drastic change in their life. I mean, is gender a social construct or is it biological? I, I do not believe gender is a social construct. I believe it's a biological fact. Um, right. Biology, or, excuse me. Um, right. A lot of things in our lives are rooted in biology. Uh, one of them is sex. One of them is gender. Um, I have no problem with people when they're adults choosing to live their life, lives in whatever ways they want. Um, but when it comes to, you know, forcing children, young children, uh, to undergo, uh, you know, um, why can I not think of the word uh, hormone therapy, excuse me. And uh, to, to instigate, uh, instigate these irreversible changes before, you know, a lot of them even undergo puberty. I think we're just unlocking Pandora's box and we're urging changes to people before they're even fully formed. Um, I think it's a huge problem when it comes to, when it comes to, uh, you know, men competing in women's sports. I think that, that, undermines the gains and the fairness women had been fighting for for so long. I think the vast majority of people agree on the majority of these topics, right? Um, I think we've gone way, way, way too far when it, when it comes to this topic. And uh, um, a lot of people are not comfortable with, uh, with where we are. Do you think gender identity um, as a social construct should be taught at uh, a middle school level, at a high school level, at a collegiate level? Uh, where? Where should that be explored for the first time? Uh, I think I think it's probably appropriate uh, at the collegiate level. Um, it, just I think if if you're teaching it in schools uh, prior and you know K through 12, I think that's too young. You're teaching it while people again are still are still kind of finding out who they are as people. They're still kind of undergoing a lot of physiological changes. People change a lot in between, even the time they're 15 and 18, right? And I think introducing things like that is just, uh, I think it's too early. Do you, do you, so you don't think it should be included, you know, like, for example, I mean, uh, you know, homosexuality is covered uh, in 
you know, high school health class, right? Yeah. It's a topic that's discussed. Um, you know, puberty is covered in, uh, you know, junior high school, middle school, even, uh, you know, I think probably that type of health education starts at age 10, age 11, uh, as kids are entering puberty and, you know, goes obviously through high school. Um, you, do you think that the issue of being transgender or the possibility of, you know, being transgender or intersexual or anything like that uh, should be introduced or discussed at all at, at those stages? Or you think that that's something that's not appropriate, um, even at, from a bird's eye perspective? I from a from a bird's eye perspective, I think, you know, taught, obviously people understand, you know, folks, folks, uh, folks who are transgender exist. And, you know, I, I think that's fine to talk about it from a bird's eye perspective, maybe in the, you know, uh, you know, high school, perhaps later years of high school uh, in that sense. But as far as teaching that gender itself is a social con- construct, which is disconnected from biology and the sort of undermine of of these incontrovertible, you know, scientific facts, I think is is not the direction we should be going. But certainly, you know, look, as I've said before, I think, you know, if 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 you are a transgender individual, you know, you should be able to live your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't be afforded equal protection under the law. You shouldn't be afforded, you know, the same rights we all enjoy. Um, you know, so talking about it from a bird's eye perspective, I, I'm fine with that. But again, the so uh, the the social uh, the social connotation of gender, I think, is a step too far. So you support um, gay marriage on a federal level? Yes, I do. Excellent. Okay. And then going forward, let's talk about uh, the Roe vs. Wade opinion that leaked uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, abortion from a federal level. So um, I think it's important, A, to note, we don't even know if the opinion is final. Uh, so... Um, I think the leak itself is troubling. It undermines the, uh, the the integrity of the Supreme Court, which is, you know, I think the last sort of area where I think a majority of Americans still respect the institution. And it, it unfortunately has arbitrated a, a lot of our most contentious battles uh, over recent years. So I think that that's that's a huge blow to its integrity. So I am troubled by that. It's important to note it's not final yet. Um, I'll say this. I think we're we are we are talking past each other to a degree uh, uh, on the topic of abortion to a degree that um, we are not talking past each other on any other issue. And we talk past each other on a lot of issues. Um, as far as my my view on abortion, um, my wife is adopted. Uh, for me, it's a very personal issue. Um, you know, I think we need to protect life. That said, uh, you know, I I do believe in exceptions for rape, incest and health of the mother. And I think it's important to note that, look, uh, the U.S. is, I believe, one of only seven countries which allows abortion after 20 weeks. And, for you know, in Europe, for example, 47 out of 50 countries outlaw abortion after 15 weeks. And over 60 percent of the American public actually agrees with the Mississippi law that we shouldn't have abortion after 50. So the vast, vast, vast majority of people I would I would actually describe as pro-life, pro-life being Hey, look, we don't believe abortion should be legal, um, you know, after a certain point in time in which the science indicates that, you know, uh, a baby is a baby is viable. I think the vast majority of people agree on that. Okay, I want to also move to an issue that I wrote about today, which is uh, student debt relief. The Biden administration is proposing $10,000 per person in student debt relief. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Good idea, bad idea, what? So I think it's a 
it's primarily a political decision that's going to do very little to make people better off. Uh, number one, the majority of student debt holders are uh, of the highest socioeconomic tranche, right? So it's going to do very little for working people. It's going to do very little for, for low-income people. Um, I think it's going to be inflationary, right? Because if you forgive debt, people will obviously spend spend uh, spend more money or have more money to spend, so it'll be inflationary. And I think perhaps most importantly, it's not going to affect any of the root causes of the explosion in the cost of higher education or make any of the any of the reforms that we think are that I think are necessary. We didn't really get to talk about education. I know we're getting up to uh, the end of the time here, but I'll say this. I think um, we've created a college or bus mentality in this country where people feel as though they're forced to go to college or they're going to be, quote right. unquote, you know, lesser achievers in life. I mean, I, th I think that's a horrible message to send. There's a lot of valid ways to live a life, to contribute to society, to, sure. you know, be able to produce economic outcomes, which will allow your family to stand on their own with dignity. Um so forgiving student debt is not going to solve any of those problems. And again, I think this is really being done in the lead up to an election year in which the administration in this Congress doesn't really have a lot of quote unquote wins in its columns. So they're trying to yep. they're I, trying to produce one. I agree with you 100 percent on that. And I and I wrote as much. And I also agree with your sentiment that, um, you know, you don't have to go to college. You know, the, the, some of the, the friends that I have that are the most productive people, and I'm talking about the people that go out and fix the roads, that fucking weld things together, the people that go out and, you know, fix cars, the people that you go to when you need a product or a service, many of them didn't go to college. And, you know, a lot of people that graduate with a communications degree, they go and, you know, sit in an office all day and produce one hour of productivity and seven hours of messing around on Instagram while, uh, you know, when I need my air conditioner fixed, I call a guy who comes here and gets it done and he's got 15 appointments that day and he's going to bang all of them out so you know th there's many many instances where uh you know not going to college uh winds up on a career puts you on a career path where you're actually contributing more productivity uh to the country than you would be otherwise it's not always the case but a lot of times it is the case all right last issue i know we have three minutes left and you have i have to apologize for trying to get all these in but uh i want to get as far as we can uh where do you stand on climate change does should the government be uh subsidizing um companies and things that are you know supposedly helping with uh, climate change and environmentalism and what's your personal take on it is the climate changing um so the climate has always been in flux the climate will always be in flux i believe i, I you know surely human human behavior has some sort of impact on the climate like any like the behavior of any other living thing on planet Earth. I think it makes sense to take care of the environment. We should be trying to, you know, trying to preserve the quality of air, of, of our air, of our water. Um, you know, a, a big thing out here is, you know, preserving green space, preserving the natural character of the land. I think all of those things are, are admirable goals, and we should be doing that uh, to the greatest extent possible. But you have to balance the needs of today with the cleaner tomorrow, right? Um, so you can't mortgage the future of working families now because you think in the future we might be able to, you know, uh, have have an entire power system based or you know, yeah, power system, you know, based on solar power, for example. Um, I think in the PA perspective, um, we have natural gas under our feet. We we have more natural gas than Saudi Arabia has oil. Natural gas, when it's liquefied, produces 90% less emissions. Than per barrel oil equivalent, yep, right. not leveraging, not leveraging that I think would be absolutely crazy. That is, mm -hmm. that is, that is the fossil fuel bridge we need to get to a cleaner future. As far as government investment and in things like green energy, the government has provided basic research grants um, for 
basically uh, most of our history. I'm fine with the government uh, providing grants to say higher uh, institutions of higher learning where you're doing these technical research, you know, on things like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, higher efficiency solar cells, things like, you know, fusion, things like cold, cold fusion, things like that. I mean, that's scientific research. And if that leads to breakthroughs in the commercial sector that are competitive and effective, I'm all for that. But if you're asking me, should should a company who produces a solar cell that's say only 10 or 12 percent efficient and only lasts seven years and then has to be thrown out in a new solar cell right. installed and those solar cells get buried in giant pits in the earth. And to build the solar cell, we have to create triple the amount of emissions right. that the cell itself right. is going to, right, right. You have to ask yourself, are we doing this just to seem like we're quote unquote being green, right. but in just, fact, we're just actually producing worse right. outcomes. Right. right, right. No, I agree with you. Listen, uh, you have to go. Dave Galuch uh, is the Republican candidate for U.S. Congress in PA05. Dave, will you, A, come back uh, on the podcast before the election because I have a bunch of other issues I want to ask you about, and B, will you commit right now that if you win and you start making your way up the political ladder and you wind up becoming a uh, federal politician of some sorts that you will always come back and talk to my listeners? I would certainly love to talk in the future, and uh, I'll be back. Uh, this election cycle, and 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 absolutely, if I win, I'll certainly be back as well. All right, thank you so much for your time. One more time, that is Dave Galuch, uh, Republican candidate for U.S. Congress in PA five, a district that uh, the edge of which I can kind of reach out and and touch from where I live. Uh, going into Delco, into uh, South Philly, I wanted to ask him if his wife had a Delco accent. I think he said she was from Delco. Dave's from. Hamburg, New York, his bio says he obviously doesn't have a Delco accent, but uh, maybe we could talk to his wife next time. You know, if she picks up the phone and she goes, yeah, (laughs) every rose has its thorn. (laughs) We'll know uh, we'll know that she's Delco through and through. I appreciated Dave coming on. It was uh, it was interesting to do a podcast like this. I've never done one like this before. And I look forward to talking to him again in the future because I wanted to ask about immigration and a bunch of other things that we didn't have time to talk about. Uh, But for right now, I am out of here. Thank you guys so much for listening. I was not, by the way, not paid or endorsed or compensated or in any way to do this. I just found it interesting. Young gentleman, he's got a great resume, uh, looking to tip the scales in a district uh, that's Democratic right now. And uh, I've had other candidates reach out to me. For interviews, but uh, I was really interested in what this guy had to say, and uh, I'm glad to have had him on. He sounds like he uh, is of sound and sober mind, and we didn't prepare at all for that interview. So the uh, the issues that I kind of peppered him on, he uh, he was talking about off the cuff. So uh, sounds like an impressive gentleman. Certainly has an impressive resume serving the country, which we're all grateful for. And uh, that's it, folks. It's summer. I got shit to do. I'm out. Peace. <laughs>